Hello, everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. I am Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. Today, we look at 70s television variety shows. And not only that, we have a very cool Bee Gees giveaway in honor of the new HBO Bee Gees documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart?, Keep listening to find out more about the documentary and how you can win some really cool prizes. First, thanks to first-time listeners. I am very happy to have you join us. Thank you also to everyone who has reached out to me via email, which you can do at the FTR70 website, just to let me know that you like the show. I really like that. You can also help pay some of the bills by going to FTR70.com and clicking on the Patreon link. So, when did we figure out the power of television? Not just that moving images and sound could be broadcast into people's homes, but how could we harness that power? Television was invented in 1927 by Philo T. Farnsworth, but A, there were no television networks, so it would be like having a box and calling it a computer and saying, I'm going to get on the internet in 1985. Nobody would have had any idea what you were talking about. B, we were on the verge of the Great Depression in 1927, where more people were concerned about jobs and mortgages and starvation than a box with pictures and sound. It wasn't until the 1950s that we could start to see TV worm its way into our culture. The Senate hearings with Senator Joseph McCarthy, he was the guy who exploited the anti-communism hysteria in the United States by falsely accusing people of being communists. Then he took it a step too far when he accused the army of being soft on communism. Millions of people watched those hearings like they were a soap opera, and they watched live when Joseph Welch said to McCarthy, At long last, sir, have you no sense of decency? No, he did not. And now he was exposed on television. In mid-century America, we could watch news shows like Edward R. Murrow's See It Now, and we could watch baseball and football, and we could be entertained with shows like I Love Lucy and the Howdy Doody Show and sports. When it came to television entertainment, though, was there anyone more influential than Ed Sullivan? Sullivan's show was on CBS from 1948 to 1971, which is an incredible run for a variety show. It was a vaudeville act on TV, essentially. You could name the type of entertainer. Opera singers, country singers, tap dancers, magicians, and yes, Elvis and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, as well as acts like the Supremes, B.B. King, Gladys Knight, and the Pips, I could go on. Suffice to say, anybody who was anybody was on that show. But it did lack a bit of the cool factor. Ed Sullivan was not cool. His show was not cool. But he did have the stars. Music and entertainment have a long history in television because television never did quite shake its radio roots. The music and variety shows built on it And that will carry us right into the MTV era of the 80s. And by the way, kids, MTV used to be all music videos all the time, 24 hours a day. But nothing 
has yet to match the popularity of variety shows of the 60s and especially the 70s when variety shows had their heyday. Why? What was it about the 70s? Well, let's look at how variety shows changed and ultimately faded away in the 70s. If you were to line up 70s variety shows like Books on a Shelf, on one end is the Smothers Brothers show, which was on CBS from February 1967 to June 1969. The other end is the Donnie and Marie show, which ended as the decade was ending in May 1979. And it was not only a fair distance from the Smothers Brothers in terms of time, but also in terms of content. At first glance, the Smothers Brothers, Dick and Tom, did not look like the TV renegades that they quickly became. A pair of young, white, young men, did I say young twice? Okay, they were both young, uh, dressed in matching red blazers, hair cut appropriately short. Nobody at CBS thought they were walking into this political shitstorm when they gave the brothers a show and a coveted time slot, Sundays at 9 p.m. This was when there was one TV in a house and families watched the same thing together in their living rooms. It did not take long, though, before the Smothers Brothers began to get very political and critical of the Johnson administration. They also started having rock and roll bands on their show in an effort to reach out to the younger generation. By the way, Steve Martin was a writer on that show. First, you had skits that were censored, and then whole episodes were censored, and the Smothers Brothers was abruptly canceled in April 1969 after two years on the air. This was not the official reason, but the real reason is that they continued to write material that was anti-Vietnam War. Here they are in 1967 with guest star George Siegel performing the classic anti-war folk song, Draft Dodger Rag. Our country are making. That's right. Yes, it's a song about a problem and how with good old American ingenuity, some people attempt to solve it. The song is called The Draft Dodger Rag. <laughs> count it off, George. Oh, I'd prefer not. Dickie, you count it off. No, no, you'd count it off, Tommy. You're the one with the natural rhythm. You're the great musician. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> Typical American boys from a typical American town. We believe in God and Senator Dodd and keep an old Castro down. And when it came our time to serve, we knew better dead than red. And when we got to the draft board, buddy, this is what we said. Oh, well, I'm only 18, I got a rough shit spleen, and I always carry a purse. Got eyes like a bat, and my feet are flat, and my asthma's getting worse. Oh, and I think of my career, and my sweetheart dear, and my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm going to school, and I'm working in a defense plant. Got a dislocated disc and a cracked up back, I'm allergic to flowers and bugs. And when a bombshell hits, I get psychedelic fits, I'm addicted to a thousand drugs. When the weak mist flows, I can't touch my toes, I can hardly touch my knees. And if the enemy came close to me, friend, why, I'd probably sneeze. But when I'm only 18, got a rupture speed, and I always carry a purse. Got eyes like a bat, and my feet are flat, and my asthma's getting worse. In 1968, Tommy and Dick Smothers produced the Smothers Brothers Summer Show. Now, this was back when network TV had very clear seasons that started in the fall, and then they took a break for the summer. 
which was often this wasteland of reruns and summer flops. The host of their summer show was Glenn Campbell. That show actually did well enough that the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour was born, debuting on January 29th, 1969, and, you guessed it, it became the replacement for the canceled Smothers Brothers show. Yes, there was some comedy on the Glenn Campbell show. Much of that does not stand up to the test of time. There are episodes of that show floating around on streaming services like Tubi if you want to check it out for yourself. The thing that really set Campbell's show apart from the variety shows that failed was the music. The music director was the legendary Nelson Riddle. Campbell's own music was this blend of country and pop, like Gentle on My Mind, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix, uh, Wichita Lineman, Galveston. His show also featured a wide range of artists from the Monkees to Johnny Cash, uh, and June Carter Cash to Ella Fitzgerald, uh, and even Stevie Wonder was on his show. In 1969, Stevie Wonder was 19 or 20 years old and had just released his 11th album, My Sharia Moore. I'm not sure exactly what inspired the pairing of Glenn Campbell and Stevie Wonder, other than the fact that Stevie Wonder was a star and you wanted stars on your TV show. This would not seem like a great pairing on paper, but judge for yourself. Here they are in a 1969 episode of the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. They're covering the Bob Dylan classic, Blowing in the Wind. I'm going to do another number with you. You're, let's, the, you're let's, the best old man do, in the world. Let's do a tune that's real soulful and it's got the thing. Soulful, okay. You want to do it? Yeah. You might come out half soul. Unfortunately, there's still a few of my questions that remain unanswered. Right. I hope we get to see them in our lifetime. I do, too. Perhaps by string a song together, maybe we can make the people understand exactly what we're talking about.
nice. I kind of got caught up in that and let it play a little longer than I intended to. Uh, That was the first show after the summer pilot, and Campbell said that was one of the highlights of his time doing the show. Steve Beverly, who is a professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and a veteran of broadcast journalism, wrote an extensive article on Campbell's show and made this observation. Glenn perfected what became the concert spot on television variety. After the half-hour station break, he was joined in the round amid the studio audience with John Hartford, the composer of Gentle on My Mind and Riddle's Orchestra, offering middle-of-the-road accompaniment. Campbell had the rare ability to cover other singers' hits and not draw the ire of the original artist's fans. He could easily segue from Jerry Reed's mellow Today is Mine to the Beatles' Yesterday to Andy Williams' Moon River. We, as a home audience, were willing to wait a full 30 minutes to be part of a free mini-concert. The late 60s seemed, at the time, to be a good time to put country music on TV. In fact, anything country, the Andy Griffith Show, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, all very popular sitcoms. Hee Haw went on the air in 1969. The Johnny Cash Show went on the air a week earlier in June 1969. Like Glenn Campbell, Johnny Cash had a wide variety of stars on his show, and often it was to please the ABC executives uh, like when he had on Bob Hope or someone like that. But there were a couple of legal and social developments in 1970 and 1971 that affected TV. First, the Justice Department reduced the number of primetime viewing hours from three to from two three from three and a half to try and loosen up some of the power that the networks had and give local and independent TV a shot at getting programs on the air. That went into effect in 1971. Second, CBS underwent something that has come to be known as the Rural Purge. Fred Silverman had just joined CBS. Uh, Actually, he had taken over CBS when in 1970 and 71, he gutted the network of any show that seemed remotely country. It did not matter what the ratings were. The Johnny Cash show, which as I said, had a cross-section of musical artists, was not just country. It was canceled in 1971. Petticoat Junction, gone. Mayberry RFD, the spinoff from the Andy Griffith show, gone. Beverly Hillbillies, the Red Skelton show, Green Acres. Even Ed Sullivan was gone. Although by that time, it was probably time for the Ed Sullivan show to depart. Anything with a tree, the saying was, and if it had a tree in it, It was gone from the CBS lineup, and it was replaced by more what they called at the time urban-friendly programming, like All in the Family, MASH, and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Why? One argument is that Silverman was going after the more heavily populated areas because he wanted the ratings. He didn't think that the network was living up to its potential. Robert Folsom, who was writing for The Socionomist in 2013, said it was representative of the negative mood in the United States in the early 70s. Much of that negativity was brought on by the Vietnam War and the recent assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and Malcolm X. What is odd about the evolution of variety shows that will fill up our imaginary shelf is that they became more sweet and family-friendly While the sitcoms got a little harder-edged, those shows, All in the Family, 
Good Times, Chico and the Man, they were very popular, but they were not necessarily sweet and maybe at times not even family-friendly, depending on your family. So how did Glenn Campbell's show survive all of this? It didn't, really. It made it about another year, and then it was canceled in 1971 after four seasons. Now, this was not the end of the variety show. In fact, the floodgates were open, not just for variety shows, but for music on television. Uh, Sonny and Cher, Tony Orlando and Don, Donnie and Marie Osmond, these were just a few of the people who had variety shows. Then there were sitcoms like The Partridge Family, about the singing Partridge siblings and their mom. The star of that show was the real-life heartthrob David Cassidy. Add in American Bandstand, Soul Train, and the Midnight Special, and there was a whole lot of music that was available on TV in the 70s. 1970 also saw the first African-American, Flip Wilson, to star in a variety show, The Flip Wilson Show. It was on NBC from September 17, 1970 to June 27, 1974. It was famous for Wilson's character, Geraldine, but it also had some great music. Uh, Aretha Franklin, The Jackson 5, Charlie Pride, Louis Armstrong, just to name a few. But he was a comedian, not a singer. The singers, Sonny and Cher got their own show in 1971. Uh, It aired on CBS from August 1971 to May 29th, 1974. Now, John Leonard, who wrote under the pen name Cyclops, wrote a review of the Sonny and Cher show in September 1971. In addition to writing that Cher was too good for Sonny, he alluded to the innocence of the show, which is in part what made shows like this so popular for this kind of weariness that we felt in 70s America. This is also that weariness what fueled the desire for 50s 50s nostalgia in the 1970s. That is not to say that Leonard thought that the show was not smart. He wrote, There is about the Sonny and Cher show that inspired comic touch to production numbers of which Only CBS seems capable whenever CBS decides reluctantly to program for people over the mental age of eight. The Smothers Brothers had it. Carol Burnett still has it. Sonny and Cher were married when the show debuted, and when they got divorced in 1974, the show ended too, at least temporarily. Tony Orlando and Don, who I talked about in episode 25, took their spot. Sonny and Cher revived their show for a couple of years in 1976 and 77. That was when Cher was married to Greg Allman. In between, they each had their own variety shows. In 1977, though, Cher said she did not like the music from the Sonny and Cher era. There were only two albums of that era she said that she liked. Now, it has been well documented that Sonny was very controlling. He was 28 and she was 16 when they met. So I'm Not sure how it could have been any other way, and no doubt that as Cher grew up, that she outgrew Sonny in that capacity. Cher called Sonny, quote, a watered-down Svengali in 1974, but in the years to come, especially after he died in a skiing accident um, in the late 90s, she gave him credit for launching her career. Now, they were known for their number one hit, I Got You Babe, from 1965, And in fact, they closed out every show with it. In fact, let's listen to a little bit of Sonny and Cher um, closing out their show with their most well-known hit, I Got You, Babe. 
Thank you all very much. And right now, folks... Oh, wait, son, wait, before you go on, uh, I just I, want to say something. No, no, no I don't want to interrupt you. I don't want to interrupt you, but I have to say... You... No, but just before I forget, because I want to say how exciting it, it is to be on the same stage with a, with a fantastic comedian and a great singer. Right. I mean, it's really... It's an unbeatable combination. Well, so. Cher, that's really sweet of you to say, but, you know, I really think you should be saying that about Gabe Kaplan and Frankie Avalon. Yes, and, but that's what I was doing. Who, who did you think I was talking about? <laughs> we say we're young and we don't know. We won't find out until we grow. I don't know if all that's true. You got me and baby, 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 I got you. Does anybody remember in 1987 when Sonny and Cher reunited on the David Letterman show and saying, I got you, babe? What a moment that was. Now, even though that is Sonny and Cher's most well-known song, Cher had other hits. In fact, she had three number one hits a row, in a row in the 1970s. The last number one hit that she had in the 1970s was this murder ballad in 1974, Dark Lady. The fortune queen of New Orleans Was brushing her cat in her black limousine On the back seat were scratches from The marks of man her fortune she had won Couldn't see through the tinted glass She said home James and he hit the gas Followed her to some darkened room Took my money, she said, I'll be with you soon. Dark lady laughed and danced and lit the candles one by one. Danced to her gypsy music till her blue was dawn. Dark lady played black magic till the clock struck on the twelve. She told me more Okay, so I called it a murder ballad. It has a murder ballad vibe to it. Cher had the opportunity to record another murder ballad, or maybe an actual one, a couple years earlier. In 1972, songwriter Bobby Russell offered The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia to Sonny Bono, thinking it might be a good song for Cher. Russell was a country songwriter, and if you scan the charts between 66 and 73, you'll see that he had five country hit singles in that period of time. A quick scan of the obituaries written for Russell, by the way, who's now a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, 
shows that we really aren't sure how to classify the songs he wrote. Crossover, pop, country, we do have that issue in the late 60s into the mid-70s. At any rate, Sonny turned the song down because he wasn't sure what Cher's fans in the South would think about the song. Now, the murder ballad is deeply rooted in Southern culture, and he apparently worried that her Southern fans would be offended. This song is essentially a a three-and-a-half-minute mystery. A guy stops at a bar after a two-week vacation and meets Andy, who tells him that his wife slept with that Amos boy and Andy himself while he was away. Andy ends up shot to death, as does the unfaithful wife, but we find out at the end of the song that it is the female narrator, the sister of the poor guy who just got back from Candletop, who did the killing. Still, her brother is found guilty of murder and executed by hanging. The line that might have concerned Sonny and taken Cher out of the running for recording the song is this one. Don't trust your soul to no backwoods Southern lawyer because the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his hands. So Russell gave it to his own wife, Vicki Lawrence. She recorded it and she was backed by the famed Wrecking Crew studio musicians. The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia was released in November 1972, and on April 7th, 1973, it hit number one on the Billboard chart. Not the country chart, the pop chart. Again, backed by the wrecking crew who brought that classic L.A. sound to this kind of, sort of, country song, this is The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. way home from Candletop Been two weeks gone and he thought he'd stop at Webb's and have him a drink before he went home to her Andy Wolo said hello and he said hi, what's doing? Woe said sit down, I got some bad news, it's gonna hurt He said I'm your best friend and you know that's right, but your young bride ain't home tonight since you've been gone, she's been seeing that Amos boy, Seth. Well, he got mad and he saw red. And Andy said, boy, don't you lose your head. Cause to tell you the truth, I've been with her myself. That's a night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's a night that they hung an innocent man. Don't trust your soul and no backwood southern lawyer Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his Now, Vicki Lawrence, who was a star on the Carol Burnett show when the night the lights went out in Georgia, hit number one, is no southerner. She played up that southern accent for her mama character on the Carol Burnett show and then the spinoff, Mama's Family. But Lawrence is from L.A. And she was performing in L.A., when she was discovered by Carol Burnett. The Carol Burnett show aired from 1967 to 1978, and the reason it ended in 1978 is Carol said that she decided to end it before she was asked to end it. And it was an incredible run for an incredible show. It was a weekly showcase of comedic genius, not just from Carol, but from her supporting cast of Tim Conway, Harvey Corman, Lyle Wagner, and of course, Vicki Lawrence. It was in the same vein as the Milton Berle show in that it relied on comedy sketches that were designed for TV 
rather than putting a radio show on TV. A lot of its material was the entertainment industry itself with satire that was kind of like a prelude to Saturday Night Live, uh, their satirical sketches for TV shows like Mission Impossible, and they had this classic sketch where they spoofed Gone with the Wind, and Carol playing Scarlet comes out wearing the curtains, the curtain rod and all. They made room for music, often with Carol singing with a guest or the guests singing old standards. It was not the type of show where, say, the Jackson 5 would come out and sing ABC, or the Osmonds would come out and sing One Bad Apple. In the 60s, the Osmonds were likely to be found on The Andy Williams Show, the classic 60s variety show that was definitely very, quote, family-friendly. Guest stars tended to be along the lines of Dick Van Dyke or the new Christy Minstrels or something like that. Four-year-old Donny Osmond, who was cute as a bug, made his TV debut on The Andy Williams Show in 1963. Ten years later, Donny was a teen heartthrob, but he and his brothers had to get rid of that Andy Williams image. They got a new record label, and along with that, they got a bit more control over the creative direction of their careers. Were the Osmonds ever cool? No, but Donnie was. They even got their own Saturday morning cartoon in 1972, and the theme song was their 1970 number one hit, One Bad Apple. a little Jackson's-esque, doesn't it? A little bit like the Jackson 5 could have recorded that. In fact, the songwriter George Jackson did have the Jackson 5 in mind when he wrote it. George was an R&B guy, and he wrote for the legendary Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The Osmonds ended up recording it in Muscle Shoals. I mean, this is what the studio where Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and the Rolling Stones and Etta James and acts like that recorded I mean, the Osmonds recorded at Muscle Shoals? Yes, they did. And One Bad Apple not only went to number one on the pop chart in 1971, it was a top 10 R&B hit, too. Donnie became the lead singer not just because of his voice, but because he made the hearts of girls go pitter-patter. Osmond Brothers shows were these pilgrimages for adolescent and teen girls in the early 70s to see Donnie, and to scream his name a lot. There was a lot of screaming when Donnie Osmond took the stage. Here's some evidence. <laughs> Donnie thought it'd be a big hit, so we recorded it. Here he is singing, Go Away, Little Girl!
All right, you get the idea. And if you watched any video uh, of Osmond Brothers concerts and uh, when Donnie takes the stage, it's just, it's pandemonium. I mean, we got Beatles-like screaming and girls passing out and needing to be carried away from the stage. It's it's crazy. That's how incredibly popular Donny Osmond was. Uh, now, this whole Osmond mania thing, which from my perspective is just human nature and nothing new under the sun, it's just really how young fans relate to their celebrities, especially when their celebrity crushes kind of take on this personal level, you know, like I was pretty sure I wanted to marry Sean Cassidy when I was nine, that kind of celebrity is going to lead Donnie to having his own variety show with his younger sister, Marie. They could take that popularity and they parlayed it into what I think is one of the more successful variety shows of the seventies. Maybe what was surprising is that we were still in the mood for variety shows in the second half of the 70s. This one was on from 1975 to 1979. The thing about this show is that by 1975, variety shows were declining in popularity, so nobody other than adolescent girls like me, the proud owner of Donnie and Marie Barbies, saw that success coming. Surely they did not think that 40 years later, they would have another 11-year run with their show in Las Vegas, but they did. It came to an end in November 2019 when 61-year-old Donnie and 60-year-old Marie closed out their last show in Las Vegas. In 1973, 14-year-old Marie Osmond became the youngest artist to score a number one hit on the Billboard Country Chart with Paper Roses. Now, this was a typical variety show in many ways, maybe more ice skating than the typical variety show, And Donnie and Marie had a very good sibling rivalry chemistry. They could also sing. Every week they did a skit based on I'm a little bit country, I'm a little bit rock and roll, with Marie being the country and Donnie being the rock and roll. The country singer Mark Cooper changed the lyrics of the song to be more appropriate for a brother and sister after he agreed to allow them to use this song on their show. Not a bad choice for all involved, is it set up that good-natured rivalry that Donnie and Marie had. A few months after the debut of their new variety show in 1975, Donnie and Marie released this single, Deep Purple. Yeah. 
was singing along to that. Weren't you? How do you not sing along to that? It made it to number 14 on the Billboard charts, but it was on the charts for at least four months. And it's a really good example of, I think, how well Donnie and Marie harmonized. They won the American Music Association Best Country Group or Duo Award in 1976. Country? Yeah, I guess so. Again, the line between country and pop was so blurry in the 70s, so I can see it. As for their show, yes, their show was a bit cheesy, but it was also a good vehicle for their talents. Donnie was asked in 2015, is there anybody out there who could pull off a musical comedy variety show nowadays? This is what he said. Nobody. It's not possible. Because the audience got to the point where the desire is on reality, and the desire is on shock. And the Donnie and Marie show was built on simplicity and innocence, and we just don't have that anymore. Nobody could pull that off, not even Donnie and Marie. The list of entertainers who had variety variety shows in the 70s is seemingly endless. Dolly Parton, Julie Andrews, Captain and Tennille, Ken Berry, the Jacksons had their own show for a while. Just about anybody who was anybody either had a show or was on a show. I got curious about the Bee Gees, given that the Bee Gees are such 70s icons. And I discovered that their TV appearances were few and far between. They were on an episode of season one of Laugh-In in 1969. In March of 69, they had released their album Odessa, which was their sixth and just not well-received at all. They also recorded Got to Get a Message to You at the same time, and it is on the remastered version of the album, but not the original. In fact, they performed the song Lemons Never Forget on Lappin, which is not even on Odessa, and they didn't perform it live. It was the soundtrack to what we would call a video in about 10 years, and it's the Brothers Gibb painting, and, well, it was the 60s. I'm not exactly sure what was going on in that video. After that, the band did make some appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson because that was almost a law. You had to do that if you were in the entertainment business in the 70s. And they were on the Midnight Special twice. Really, that was just about the extent of their TV appearances in the decade, except for what happened at the end. By the end of the decade, the Bee Gees' fortunes changed and changed a lot thanks to perhaps their reluctant embrace of disco and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack in 1977. They had 14 top tens, nine number ones, 20 singles in the Hot 100. That does not even count the songs that they wrote and didn't perform on, like If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elliman or Shadow Dancing by their brother, Andy Gibb. With all due to respect to rock and roll in so many ways, the Bee Gees were the 70s. And it is very fitting that they closed out the 70s, not with a variety show, but their own 90-minute concert special on primetime on NBC in the final weeks of the 70s, November 21, 1979. Music on TV was evolving away from variety shows, and even American Bandstand was losing some of its appeal. The Midnight Special went off the air in 1981. We we are moving towards music videos, which was like having a video jukebox if you had cable TV and MTV or VH1. The Bee Gees TV special in 79 is that bridge between variety shows and music videos. Before the 1980s, you sold some records and you were given a TV show. 
in the 1980s, MTV made you that star. And performers like Michael Jackson and Madonna created music with the video in mind. The BG special in 1979 featured footage from their concert in Oakland that summer on their Spirits Having Flown tour. Of course, the concert is packed with their disco hits, and while disco may have been on its way out, it was hard to tell from the screams of the crowd. The show opens with tragedy, or at least it's one of the first two songs, but when they broke into Staying Alive, the crowd went nuts. Of course, that's the first cut on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Before that soundtrack, we already start to hear the disco influence in the album main course. The first single from that 1975 album was this, and it went to number one. It's their first number one hit since How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. The band's career was, I would say, revived and more with Jive Talking. And if you get a copy of the DVD of this NBC TV special, I defy you to be able to actually hear them singing over the screams of the crowd. If you are a fan of the Bee Gees, you are going to want to watch the documentary on HBO. Here is what HBO has to say about that. You've heard their music, now hear their story. From director Frank Marshall, HBO's new documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, chronicles the highs and lows of brothers Barry, Morris, and Robin Gibb in the evolution of their prolific career as the Bee Gees. Through interviews and never-before-seen footage, discover how they navigated the ever-changing music industry and complex dynamics of family and fame. Watch it Saturday, December 12th at 8 p.m. on HBO and HBO Max. And while we are at it, would you like a copy of Main Course? I mean, an actual vinyl record or perhaps a limited edition BG's poster? Here is how you can get one. Head on over to the new Facebook page for For the Record the 70s. Start following the new Facebook page for the Record the 70s and look for the post about this giveaway. Simply leave a comment with your favorite BG song, and that's it. You're entered. That's all you got to do. That's a pretty easy way 
to score some really cool vinyl or a cool poster. As Telly Davidson points out in his book, and Davidson writes about the very topic of TV variety shows and their place in history, he says that they should have a revered place in 20th century entertainment history. It is how most people found out about Elvis and the Beatles. Appearances from the legends like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington and Gene Kelly helped keep them in the public eye. Davidson points out that the shows that morphed out of Ed Sullivan's show and Milton Berle's show in the late 60s and early 70s are a time capsule into what was happening in politics, fashion, music, TV, sports, and film. So even though on the surface you might say, hey, those shows are actually lacking in depth and maybe they're even a little cheesy, they do tell us something by their very existence of maybe where we were in terms of what we were looking for in entertainment, but they're also a who's who of politics, fashion, music, TV, sports, and film. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out the new For the Record, the 70s Facebook page and throw your hat in the ring for a chance at winning a prize. You can also still follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. If you like the show, tell somebody or give it a good rating on your podcast app so others can find the show. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.